Thank you for tuning in to the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast, brought to you by Student Staff Partnership at the University of Westminster. This is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host, Kyra, and for this episode, I'll be in conversation with Dr. Shay Keogh, a lecturer in Chinese studies in the School of Humanities at Westminster. In this interview, we discuss Shay's academic journey and the focus of their PhD. We also unpack Chinese media representations and the impact they have on both people and politics. And towards the end, Shay shares some of their ideas and methods for decolonizing the humanities classroom. Hi, Shay. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. It's so nice to finally meet you. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Tired in week 11, but pretty good. (laughs) So I thought we could begin with talking just a bit more about yourself. So first things first, where are you from? Uh, I'm from Ireland, uh, from the very southeast corner uh, in County Wexford. So that's where I was born and brought up. Amazing. And looking back to you as a child, would you say your perception of race has changed drastically? Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. I think, uh, I guess, growing up in that part uh, of Ireland during the like late 1980s and the 1990s, it was very homogenous in so many ways and uh, unwelcoming as well. Not like naturally homogenous, but um, it was an unwelcoming place if you weren't, uh, for example, if you weren't white, uh, if you weren't. I suspect a native speaker of English. uh, And I think if you weren't Catholic as well, uh, you know, during that time in small kind of rural Ireland. um, So it was, yeah, it was quite limited, um, quite limited who you see um, walking around the village who you go to school with. I mean, the most, um, you know, I remember a kid who was Protestant coming to my uh, primary school, which, you know, I had six people in my class, I think. So quite a small group. And, you know, that felt like a radical, like <laughs> that felt like something radical. So, you know, I think that that probably, yeah, gives you a sense of how, what a kind of, um, yeah, very kind of, I, I guess like kind of tightly controlled space in terms of like who could be there and who was welcome. Um, hmm. yeah. yeah. So you say how the town that you grew up in was quite um hum- um, homogenous um, but do you still feel like you had access to like good representations of people that may not necessarily look like you I suppose you did but maybe people that you could relate to and kind of like identify with yeah in some ways I think it was um, it's a really interesting one I think Ireland sits at a really strange place when it comes to media representation um, you know, most of the media content I would have seen when I was a kid was uh, from the US or from the UK. So like the cartoons, for example, they they weren't produced in Ireland. Um, We didn't hear our, I didn't hear my accent uh, on TV or in films. Um, And if if Ireland was mentioned, uh, it was really problematic. Like it was, you know, the way Ireland and Irish people um, were represented and continued to be in lots of ways was really like kind of you know stereotyped and essentialist and like the accent was always kind of something that was mocked and ridiculed and seen as like foolish and kind of stupid and backward and so on so there was really a sense of like you know when Ireland 
was represented in US and UK media, um, it was always like the butt of the jokes. Um, so, uh, and yeah, I think that's changed a lot now. I think, you know, Irish animation seems to be really having a moment at the moment. And, and that's, um, yeah, that's, that's really nice. Like, I don't really know much about what's happening in it other than it's a thing. Um, but I think, yeah, Ireland's still got a really uh, long way to go with um, media representation of, of people of color, for example. I don't think that that's still like, examined in any great depth in uh, soap operas, for example, or films. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of work to happen. So what kind of sparked your interest in Chinese studies? Was that through like media or what? Like what? I'm really intrigued to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a strange one. Um, I So when I was growing up, and I guess, this, you know, it speaks to that particular background as well. That was kind of like inward looking and homogenous in lots of different ways. So China didn't feature uh, in any part of my upbringing, really. Um, it, I can't remember China being mentioned in any like great depth either in like primary school or in secondary school so it was um, kind of like accidental I guess in lots of ways um, I, I was um, in my, my my first degree I was studying math and, and sociology very strange combination um, that kind of blew up in my face when I got to second year and I thought this doesn't work I don't like it uh, and so it was at that point that I kind of started to think about, okay, what else uh, could I do? And I had done this kind of like teaching English as a foreign language course. And the first uh, legitimate looking job that came up happened to be in China. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go to China. Like there was, there was really, you know, I was like 19. I was, uh, yeah, really uh, naive about the world, but I, you know, I just happened to be a native speaker <laughs> just happened to be a native speaker and uh and that was attractive enough uh, to hire a 19 year old uh to teach english um so so that's kind of where it started i i went to china i didn't know much um but very quickly i had to you know just start learning the language and start learning a little bit about how to be in the classroom and uh you know how, how the classroom works i guess in a very different context and I ended up staying for uh, for about five years uh, and moved around a little bit here and there. Uh, and I think, I mean, the main kind of point of why I left when I did was that because visa, um, visa requirements were starting to tighten up quite a lot. So it became really important, actually, that you had a first degree. So I had this uh, idea that like, oh, I'll just nip back to Ireland and finish that degree. And oh, lo and behold, my university was then offering Chinese studies. And I thought, well, that'll be easy. I already speak quite a bit of Mandarin. I'm sure I can like breeze through. Um, so I kind of started like that. But actually when I, um, when I got back to Ireland and I started doing the Chinese uh, studies as a degree, um, I, was, I was really, you know, it was just, it was a very different kind of engagement with um, China than the kind of day-to-day -day interactions and learning that I had uh, done when I was there. So things like history and politics and economics and uh, literature, drama, film, theatre, like such an amazing um, degree programme. And I loved it. I really, really liked it. And um, 
I I wanted to keep going with it and so that's kind of what happened I just got carried away and <laughs> <laughs> no that's amazing and well on the topic of like your academic kind of background so obviously you did a degree in Chinese studies could you give us a breakdown of kind of like the rest of your academic background so from your undergrad to now yeah um yeah so the undergrad yeah Chinese studies um I think a really, really important part of this whole story actually is like, you know, uh, where fees, tuition fees fit into the story. Uh, so at that time in Ireland, tuition fees were really, really low. So I could do that. You know, I could go back. I could jump in and not worry. It was still tight in lots of ways. Covering rent is an important, was an important thing and like, you know, food and all of that stuff. But I was um, relatively lucky that tuition fees were very, very low at that time, like only a couple of hundred um, or a few hundred uh, euros. Um, so when I was looking to master's programs, um, Chinese studies in Ireland is, is, is quite a young area. So there's not really a lot of master's programs it might be different now. Uh, but I was kind of starting to look abroad um, and I, I looked at the UK and I was terrified by the tuition fees. Um, I mean, they're they're frightful. Um, just get worse and worse and I ended up going to uh, the Netherlands because mainly because it was uh, it's, it's a good program but also because it was affordable um, so uh, so that was a really kind of big part of my decision to 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 go study in the Netherlands for a year and and again it was um, it was a really good program um, really yeah really kind of pushed me to think about uh, China and how under how knowledge about China is produced in, uh, in very very different ways so it was a really great education um, and after that I went to uh, Nottingham um, in the UK to do my PhD and again it was like you know very again it, it's a, it's a good, it was a good program but it was also very motivated by um, the funding like I was just lucky to get funding for the program and so that's um yeah that's what took me to Nottingham and and I guess you know beyond uh Cork and Leiden and Nottingham um yeah I've been really fortunate to, to study at like Chinese universities as well I got to do a year abroad during my BA uh, so I returned from China and then did a year and they sent me back to China again and uh, so hopping around a lot um but that was a great experience I got to study in um the far west in Sichuan province um, and I, during my, I'd also studied um, in various different capacities in China. I studied um, at universities in China, like different language courses. And I also studied with like a kind of an underground uh, church collective as well. They just happened to have a really good collection of, um, of Chinese language teachers. So that was really interesting too. And I also got to go to, um, I was lucky to get funding to go to Nepal and study Tibetan as well during my PhD. Um, so yeah, it's got, uh, yeah, really privileged. I've managed to study in, in lots of different places and move around quite a, bot, quite a bit and get experiences of, um, yeah, how higher education works in lots of different countries. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. You're definitely well-traveled. <laughs> <laughs> So what made you choose online politics and representation surrounding Tibetan modernity as the focus of your PhD? Like, could you talk us a little bit through that? 
yeah it's um yeah it's, it was a really it's a really good question um to kind of think about how how it how it was I mean I when I lived in China I I didn't live in any Tibetan areas um I had traveled to Tibet uh, a few times but like that was it and I traveled to lots of places so you know the idea of Tibet sticking is is not it's not clear why that would happen but what really I think I think one of the kind of turning points for me was that when I went back to Ireland um and I you know I told people oh you know I lived I was just lived in China for five years like one of the first things that people um often said or one of the first questions they had or one of the first ways they reacted was like it was kind of like oh what do you think of Tibet and I I was really struck by that and I think maybe you know there's something I think there's something kind of generational about that like during the 1990s Tibet was was really prominent in popular media like there was seven years in Tibet like Brad Pitt was in that there was also Kun Bun uh Martin Scorsese film so Tibet was really big in the popular imagination during the 1990s and it's really kind of fallen out of it now um so for people I guess who um who I would have met after I returned to Ireland uh, after staying in China they they were kind of of the same generation like Tibet had been on their mind and they knew that oh, there's something something's happening between Tibet and China something's um yeah there's 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 uh there, there's like human rights abuses I think was like the first thing on people's um people's minds and so that came up really really quickly in all the conversations and and I found myself kind of being confronted with um like an idea about Tibet uh, by many people in Ireland, but like it's kind of this like, um, oh, I don't know, like Tibetans are so like, you know, non-materialistic and kind of super enlightened and really detached actually from like a world as it exists kind of outside of modernity. And it that that really struck me as like, well, that's, that's, that's problematic. Like Tibetans are, have the same concerns <laughs> as most people in the world. But it didn't. It didn't quite seem to um, connect, um, and so there was that. And I had been really, you know, I knew what the Chinese state media representations of Tibet looked like. It's like Tibetans were very, very happy being part of China, and uh, you know, loved to sing and dance all the time. And it was a wonderful place to be. And it felt like wow, this kind of yeah, these kind of politics of representation. They, they both seem really problematic and really kind of I don't know binary in lots of ways and and I thought it would be interesting to to think a little bit more about where those representations come from why does Tibet was represented in those ways and where do Tibetans fit in in that what do Tibetans have to say about how it's represented so I think it all kind of um it started from um a point like that and and I guess it was also you know in somewhere in all of that as well to kind of link back to the point about how Irish people I'd noticed how Irish people were represented in the media there was something that kind of related to that too there was like a sensitivity maybe to particular kinds of representations of particular groups and who those representations serve they often feel like a kind of a plaything for more powerful groups to kind of throw around and um so I was kind of there was yeah I think there's there's something about that too that kind of um thinking from for a long time about how how certain groups
Yeah, no, thank you. And it's nice to hear how, you know, it's funny that you said at the beginning, like you don't know how it kind of fell into your lap, but you can see now how it's kind of like really been, how it is close to you and how, you know, it's come out of like those sensitivities that you also identify with. So yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you. Um, Going back to kind of like Chinese studies, I guess more generally, we've spoken about your interest as well as some of the research you've done surrounding obviously Tibet, but I thought it might be nice to have a discussion about kind of Chinese media representations and then perhaps get into some of the ideas and concepts that get addressed on the contemporary China Centre blog that you are an editor for. (laughs) (laughs) So first things first, what characteristics of Chinese media do you feel like make it a kind of colonial force or tool yeah it's yeah it's a really it's a really good question um I think and I think no first of all uh thank you for using the word colonial in your question because I feel like in Chinese studies sometimes there's a lot of discomfort like it's often you often see Tibet talked about as incorporated into China. And it's like, wow, that, <laughs> that obscures a lot when we say incorporated. So colonial force, I think, is um, is really uh, important language. I think um, so it's quite a, I think, you know, a good thing about Chinese studies is that there's 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 a lot of attention to the way that uh, Chinese media represents um uh, kind of so-called ethnic minorities in China. It's kind of a problematic term, but the, kind of the basic idea is that in in China, about ninety percent of the population are Han Chinese, um, and that kind of further ten percent are the ethnic minorities, or the and fifty-five uh, ethnic minority groups. And the ethnic minority, um, you know, the title of that can be really problematic because it it also feels like that obscures uh, how people came to be part of China. They're not, you know, colonial, for example, seems to go out the window with that. Um, But so there's a lot of work in Chinese studies about um, how ethnic minorities, uh, (laughs) want of a better term, how they are represented. And it kind of tends to go like this, you know, the Han Chinese are represented as, as, you know, the kind of the modern people and non-Han or the ethnic minority population then are represented as, as backwards, kind of primitive, as like forever catching up, but not quite getting there and always in need of help to modernize. Um, and again, that modernity is very much defined along Han Chinese lines as well. So it's not like non-Han Chinese get to um, determine what their own modernity might look like. So there's a lot of othering, there's a lot of essentializing, Kind of exoticizing as well and even infantilizing of ethnic uh, minority peoples across China. Um, and so what that looks like in practice is um, a really kind of strange uh, focus, perhaps not so strange, um, uh, like a really heavy emphasis on dancing and singing, these kind of like childlike qualities and like really close to nature and really happy and kind of the simplistic uh, childlike state. Um, the other part of the problem is that there's also a lot of censorship. So things like the, the not so happy aspects of life um, are not seen. Uh, and that's a big problem, like the kind of grievances of Tibetans, for example, or Uyghurs. Um, it's very, very difficult for Tibetans themselves or for Uyghurs themselves or um, for any other ethnic minority group to to talk about 
uh, what's not okay and uh, historically what's not okay, the different kinds of discrimination and prejudice that they encounter. That, that gets wiped very, very quickly off the internet. Um, and it, if it doesn't, um, I, I feel like the kind of, you know, people, maybe, you know, oftenhand Chinese people who read those accounts will kind of be little and dismiss it in some way, right? Kind of silence it and say, oh, you know, like, you know, you're making a big deal out of this or, um, oh, you know, like what I see quite a lot is that, oh, there are good people and bad people everywhere. Like, let's just get along. And it's like, well, that's, that doesn't help open up the conversation of what these grievances are about and the source of conflict is here and how to address it. It just shuts it down. Um, so I think for um, for ethnic minorities who want to challenge some of those state media discourses, it's really, really difficult. Um, and so what you're left with um, as a result of this kind of censorship and the silencing is this really one dimensional and like really singular narrative without any kind of space for critique. Uh, and so it's, yeah, there's not really any space actually to, to kind of open it up and think about well, why does S, why do ethnic relations in China look the way they, they do? That kind of critical space is, is, is really difficult to carve out. My next question was going to be actually, um, why do you think some of these representations are accepted by the Chinese public? But then I guess it has a lot to do with the censorship and the fact that any resistance is kind of like wiped off the face of the earth. So where do you see, like, if I was looking to do research on some of these topics and I was doing research on like the resistance against these kind of representations, where would I find that? Yeah, yeah, it's... um. It's a good question. Um, and I, I think it's it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of one of the big questions that I was looking at in my in my PhD is like, OK, this is what the state media discourse is. Obviously, very, very difficult to push back against that. And yet, you know, people can find ways to do it. Um, I think a lot of, a lot has changed since I started my PhD. I think it has become more and more difficult to to voice um, like. I guess counter stories are what I, I talk about. They're kind of like, you know, if the state says this, uh, Tibetans might say, well, actually, like this is another way of looking at it. So it might not necessarily directly critique state media, but it offers like a different story and an alternative account. Um, and so I think there's lots of those like Tibetan literature, Tibetan film. Um, there's that can that that's quite quite popular in um, in China as well, and I guess it all comes down to how it's interpreted and what kind of frames of uh, uh, analysis there are for for doing that. But um, I think film and uh, literature are a really important way to do that. Um, and of course, there's kind of a there's a there's a particular kind of privilege, I guess, that comes with um, the people who can do that work, right? The people who will have their work published or can make a film or have it. Know, the enormous uh, kind of budget and and um, like access to education and so on to do all of that work but uh, uh, yeah I think it, it does happen I think it's getting harder and harder a really vibrant place where those uh, counter stories were happening um, and you know I think I think there have been some really kind of positive examples too of allyship of like kind of hand Chinese allyship that um, 
the like I've seen a little bit a bit a little bit of on um on like social media platforms like WeChat and Weibo in China, the two big ones when I was doing my PhD. Um, and it's really tricky. It's it's really tricky for Han Chinese to do that work too because it, it can put them in danger too. So it's 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 a it's a really tricky spot. It's not um you know it's I guess it's easy to kind of paint the kind of good guy bad guy situation, but it it can be really really difficult to. Uh, to firstly, to have that conversation, um, especially when media and education all your life has like told you that this is how, this is like the natural state of affairs. Like Han are just modern, and ethnic minorities are, are, are otherwise. Um, so, so allyship does happen, I guess. Um, but yeah, the, the space for that and the space for those counter stories are. Thank you. And what are some of the implications of these kind of media representations on the political system or kind of what, how do they function within the political system, maybe? Yeah, they're, they're so important. Um, I think it's funny sometimes, like for, um, yeah, like re- what, what, what you come up against, I guess, when you talk about media representations or like social media discourse there's almost a sense of like, oh, it's just social media discourse. It's just something that's happening online. It's like, wow, like <laughs> that. It, it's really important, especially if it's what you're confronted with every day. That's like how people are talking about you. It's um, it's it really matters. That kind of representation really, really matters, and it's important to to pay attention to. Um, and it serves a purpose. There's a reason why the Chinese state bangs on relentlessly about how happy Tibetans are. It's not just for, I don't know, it's not just because they're bored and they're looking for media content. Like it serves a very important political purpose. Um, and and I think it really helps to sustain and legitimize Chinese rule in Tibet. Uh, it sustains Han domination in Tibet, makes it look kind of inevitable, makes it look natural and normal. Um, that you know that Chinese economics and politics and and media are all hand centric. Like that's just the way of the world. So I feel like all of these media representations, they just kind of, you know, they reproduce that particular ideology that like Han are modern, Han are rightfully in places of power in China, and ethnic minorities are there to be educated about how to how to modernize. Like it kind of sustains that system and it makes people think, well. Why would it be any other way? Of course, it's going to be like that. This is the rightful way. Um, so, so I feel like it's really, really important. And of course, it also, again, it kind of shuts down that space for questioning. It shuts down the space for thinking about and reckoning with China as a colonial state. And it also shuts down the possibilities for reimagining uh, what 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 China might be and what maybe you know an independent Tibet might look like, for example, or. Uh, how could yeah all of these kind of questions about alternative um, alternative worlds it, it down and it makes them seem um, kind of dismisses them as relevant questions or even important questions to bother asking in the first place. So just linking back to the contemporary China Center blog, how did that kind of like come into being? Was that kind of like a resp- like was it created to kind of be a, like a response to? some of the tensions and things that go on in China that, you know, they, that may not necessarily be discussed by like a lot of Western, like a Western audience or may not be seen by a Western audience. What was kind of the inspiration behind that? Yeah. Um, oh, it's, it's a really good question. I think, um, 
yeah, the blog, I think, I think, you know, since my PhD, I've been doing a lot of, I had my like personal blog and I also run like a queer feminist um, blog as well. So like queer feminist activism in China. And I really loved the kind of the way that you could get people to write short pieces, like 800 words or a thousand words about their research. So something that they might've published in a journal article that might not be so accessible for lots of people. Um, be just too long and kind of jargony in some cases as well uh, so instead you kind of like boil it down to what what could be you know something that's more accessible to everyone it might be an informed yeah. reader but not necessarily someone who knows um who studied like chinese history and politics and so on you don't have to have a degree in it to, to read the blog so i i loved that idea and i felt like it was really um i felt like it was a really effective way to kind of um, communicate, to talk about, to, to share and to kind of enter into dialogue with people about China in lots of different ways. And so when I came to Westminster, um, I was kind of hoping to start something like that up as well. And um, yeah, and, and it kind of, I guess it kind of um, took off from there we we have like this collection of posters as well at the university um uh prop chinese propaganda posters um from like the 1940s to 1980s and so we were also trying to think of a way to really like publicize that and let people know that like hey we've got like a really impressive uh, collection uh, of of chinese propaganda posters and like a really interesting history of chinese studies at the university too so the blog was was aimed at kind of doing all of that on the one hand, like talking about, um, yeah, talking about China in a way that was that really spoke to the kind of Chinese studies that we do at the University of Westminster, which is really like cultural studies based. Um, yeah. So it was a way of kind of highlighting that work that's taking place in Chinese studies and also kind of boosting our posters, getting people around the world to write about how you use these posters in the classroom, for example, or what like you know, kind of thinking of, you know, the politics of representation within our posters as well and what we can learn from different uh, historical eras based on the posters. But all kind of um, came together in that way. Um, yeah, it's all about that kind of informed and accessible uh, commentary about, about Chinese and, and also kind of trying to broaden it out as well. So it's not just China, but also kind of um, Sinophones, so thinking about Hong Kong and Taiwan and other um Chinese or Sinophone um speakers, cultural practices and so on around the world. Amazing. Thank you, Shay. Um it's really great to hear that, like, you know, that, like a platform like this that like, exists at the university. And obviously, like you said, it's completely open access. So you don't need to be just from mm. Westminster to read these mini articles and kind of like opinion pieces. Yeah. So yeah so on really like interesting and thought-provoking um topics so thank you I definitely recommend <laughs> everyone give that blog a read I'll have the links in the description <laughs> and for the last segment of this episode I thought we might touch on what it means to decolonize Chinese studies curricula or even kind of the humanities as a whole um what forms of coloniality have you noticed in kind of Chinese studies specifically? Like what areas really stand mm. out to you? Um, yeah, it's, it's a question I'm, I've been thinking about. Um, I've been thinking about a lot. Um, 
and I'm I'm I feel like it's it's really in process. I guess one one example um, that I've mentioned so far is like the way that Tibet gets talked about as like incorporated into rather than like you know colonized. And um, I think there, there's a yeah there's a there's a strange uh, perhaps not so strange tendency. Uh, to think of colonialism and empire as um, Western practices, and like they get defined along Western lines, and and it, 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 so you hear sometimes that people will say, well, well, China, China couldn't colonize, or China couldn't be an empire, and it feels like it misses out on uh, such an important way of thinking about how why the Chinese state works the way it is, or what what kind of practices. It exercises when it comes to Tibet, for example, or to um, the Uyghur region, to Inner Mongolia, to different parts, um, and even kind of like neo-colonial practices as well. So I think, yeah, there's there's a reluctance sometimes to to engage with that. There's, uh, but I th I think I think things are moving that way. I know there's really great conversations happening, increasing in Chinese studies about that. Um, there's also like I I kind of. I think China, China, China's like uh like most uh post-colonial uh states. It's a kind of post-colonial colonial state. Like that, there often seems to be an interplay in 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 many post-colonial states um with colonizing and being colonized. And so there's there's something like that as well. There's I feel like there's there's something to grapple with um in how we think about China's relationship uh with with Tibet, for example, but also different parts of the world that that we really need to kind of think about the post-colonial and the colonial state together. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that, that's something where there's a reluctance, I think, in some ways, and in other ways, it's, it's really productive. There's also like a broader question of how China is represented. Like China often gets talked about as like the China threat. Uh, like China's rise is a danger to the rest of the world and it's kind of like thrown out there as a given and it's so loaded it's so loaded like historically China's um, been talked about as like the red scare and like yellow pearl like these discourses about China are uh, the China threat it's not it's not new it's kind of the latest iteration and it's like historically informed by all of these other um, orientalist ways uh, that China's been talked about um, as something kind of unknowable and risky and dangerous and so on. Um, so I feel like that's it's really important to be kind of honest about where this China threat language is coming from because that is a kind of a, a kind of coloniality as well um, in the West when it comes to talking about China. Um, there's one other um, one other example I was thinking about, something I've been working on with um, with two colleagues in Chinese studies at Westminster, and it's about language teaching. And um, we've been really like digging deep into our language Chinese language textbooks, um, and textbooks are such like uh, I mean they're 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 always really problematic. Like whether it's French or um, Spanish, Japanese, like they promote really kind of strange. Um, strange kind of depictions of how the world works and who's who and who likes what. And, uh, so we've been doing that with our Chinese language textbooks. Um, we've just written a chapter for um, for a book that's coming out I think next year on language pedagogies, language teaching, language learning pedagogies. 
So we've been looking at the Chinese language textbooks that we learn, uh, that we use at Westminster. And, um, you know, the way ethnic minorities in China are represented, for example, it's actually a lot of the same stuff that I've talked about. Like they're always singing and dancing. They never live in cities. They're always kind of, you know, really close to nature and like pure. And it's 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 in the language textbook. And that's really scary because um, I think when people are, studying language textbooks they're focusing on the language they're focusing on the grammar they're focusing on the vocab they're not thinking about the ideology that's like flowing through yeah. the textbook um so it's like really obvious and at the same time it's not so it's it's um it's good to make it really like um visible and to like tear it apart and think about why it works and even like the way china is represented china is like this and the west is like this it's all really like fixed and quite oppressive discourses all of it fuels the vision and kind of the binary thinking and rather than thinking about connections and like like transnational histories colonial legacies shifting power dynamics it all feels so static and fixed in time um so i think that's yeah it's another kind of coloniality that gets reproduced in in the um in the curricula as well yeah thank you and I guess this is more of a general question, but do you think it's possible to kind of decolonize our curricula when the systems in wider society continue to kind of reinforce like colonial and racist ideologies and practices? Yeah, it's a, it's, um, it's a really good question. I, I think no. <laughs> I think it's a really firm no for me. It's, it's, um, it's funny, you know, when um, I think when some of our students for example come through the door or um and i i think westminster is not unique in this at all like uh, people already have a lot of ideas about china more than they more than they are aware of and i think and i and i i think i've um you know that's something that i'm still kind of working through myself like i can you know i can feel like ideas about china coming up well where's that coming from and it's all of that kind of um you know it's a kind of insidious racism uh of of society that you're you're not even aware of until like you know uh you kind of i don't know this thought just comes to mind you're like wow well, that's that's really toxic stuff where does that come from so it's so pervasive i think it's so so pervasive and you know you just have to think about like you know uh covid19 like in march last year and the way china was represented um it didn't come out of any it didn't come out of nowhere you know it was it was it was there it was it was just it was sitting there and a lot of people uh, were already experiencing it in in really violent ways but COVID-19 just like elevated that to another um level so that was in the media um in in really it just seemed to be everywhere it really seemed to be everywhere so if if that's the kind of the broader social kind of political historical context as well um i think it's really yeah it's really tricky to, to kind of think of the classroom as isolated from all of that or as existing in a vacuum from all of that because it's um it's it's all connected it's it's all really really connected so it's um yeah i think decolonizing the curricula it it, it needs to connect with decolonizing projects outside the university as well we can't just decolonized from the classroom outwards I think it can do a lot of great things in the classroom but we've got to be kind of connecting with what's going on outside too 
Well, speaking of the great things that we can do in the classroom, what do you feel like lecturers can do to kind of decolonize their pedagogy and practice? Like, do you have any specific methods of your own that you can share? I kind of think like first and, and foremost, it's really good to think about what decolonization is and what decolonizing pedagogy and practice is. I, 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 I think, um, and I, I know I'm, I'm far from the first to bring it up, but I think um, it, it gets kind of mixed up and confused with ideas of like diversity and inclusion and EDI kind of stuff. And, and that's, that, yeah it's not what it is right that's something very very um different so uh, i think it's really useful to kind of go back to basics sometimes and think about what what decolonization is and what it isn't um and i think from there you know you can really rather I, I feel like there's a real um oh like a tendency to like hear the word decolonization and say okay let's go and decolonize everything and it's like well it, you know the, it's such a big part i think is the unlearning right the, like unlearning all of the, the colonial stuff all the coloniality in the curricula so i feel like you know it's really important to sit down and look at the curricula and really like bear witness to what exactly is going on here what have we been teaching um because i think unless you kind of identify all of the the colonial violence is happening in the curricula then like it's 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 um it's a dangerous move to skip that step and go straight to kind of thinking about okay so what are we going to do like you've got to be aware of the problems and um and the consequences of those problems too like what harm have they done and that's uh that feels like a really important step and i think that's a good one for students and um students and staff to work together on as well to kind of collaborate in that kind of on learning process and yeah and I think you know imagining alternatives I think is a really good thing for students and staff to do to do together as well what needs to be there and you know what kind of materials do we need to develop um, how should teaching happen um, how might assessments happen uh, what kind of all of it like learning learning to be uncomfortable as well and listening learning to 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 listen um, and yeah, and being really honest as well about the, you know, like like the last, you know, what we were talking about in the last question, being really honest that like the university doesn't happen in a vacuum. The university is absolutely plugged into the broader context. So, you know, racism and all kinds of uh, subjugation and oppression and control that's like flowing through the classroom. And we've got to be really, really honest about that because if we don't stop and identify it, um, then I, 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 yeah, I feel, I feel like, I feel like decolonization can't begin until we actually start to identify, um, yeah, what's what, what, what the problem is. Thank you, Shay. Those are some really important points. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of this interview. But as a question that I like to end on, what would you like to see happen or develop within higher education in the next ten years? Hmm. Yeah. Oh God. It's it's really it's so hard to know where to start with this one. But I guess like <laughs> the the recent UCU strikes are um I feel like their um yeah, I feel like their demands are are a really a really concrete place uh to begin. I think yeah, I think higher education uh is in such a such a a sad and dreadful place at the moment. Um there needs to be some 
really serious reckoning with how academia works. Um, working conditions need to improve. There need to be uh, needs to be better and fairer pay and pensions. We need to stop uh, ASAP casualization and make jobs more secure. Um, there needs to be equality as well. It's kind of pay gaps wherever they can be they seem to be in the most like intense way so these kind of equality pay gaps need to be dealt with uh fees need to go right they're so exclusionary and it's um it's terrifying like the the amount of student debt that people have to carry around it's it, it that that just shouldn't happen um uh there yeah and there needs to be more support in all kinds of ways more financial support to to let those who want to go to university and want to study let them study with all the support that they can have and i'd say as well um you know a real grappling with the history of uh higher education like the institutions like the university of westminster how did westminster get uh, set up how was it funded where did that money come from um and how has the university benefited from that legacy at the um you know, again, what kind of what kind of violence uh, have we been implicated in, um, and how do we continue to fund ourselves as well? Where's where's the money coming from? I feel like that's a really really important question. Um, and uh, as always, like who's at the table when big decisions are being made about how the university works? Who gets to make those decisions, and who is always shut out in one way or another? Um, so yeah, it's it's a. Uh, <laughs> There's a, there's there are a long a long list of things that need to change urgently. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Shay. Um, I just want to thank you again for joining me on this episode of the podcast. It's been really nice just getting to know a little bit more about yourself and obviously having the opportunity to discuss the great work you're doing at the university and obviously your take on decolonization in Chinese studies. And I also look really forward to reading your book chapter that comes out next year. So definitely keep us updated. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast as well. It's a really excellent initiative and uh, yeah, looking forward to more episodes. To find out more information, access our tools or get in touch, visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk slash PSJ. Mm-hmm.